0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is David Hall, and he is a partner at Rise of the Rest uh, Seed Fund. A little background, I previously had interviewed both Gene Case, uh, who runs the Case Foundation and is uh, a former early executive at AOL, and coincidentally married to Steve Case, the co-founder of AOL, Um, and she introduced me to Steve Murray, who uh, works at uh, Revolution Partners Fund, which is uh, run by Steve Case, and in my research with Steve Murray, I came across Rise of the Rest, and afterwards he said, oh, you're interested in this, I got a guy you have to speak to, Uh, and his name is David Hall. If you are remotely interested in, oh, my goodness, so much stuff, the state of venture capital in America today, why it doesn't have to just be focused on three areas, uh, namely San Francisco, Boston, and New York, how much entrepreneurship, technology, startup energy is in the rest of the country, well, you're going to find this conversation absolutely fascinating. With no further ado, my chat with David Hall. My special guest today is David Hall. He is a partner at the Venture Capital Fund Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, part of Revolution Partners uh, VC. He comes to us with a BA in economics from Morehouse College and an MBA from Harvard. Prior to joining Revolution, he worked at the Washington Post as the director of planning and developing, managing corporate M&A and investments, and helping to launch a number of new print, and digital publications. David Hall, welcome to Bloomberg.
0: Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So I've been speaking to a number of VCs over the past couple of years, and I'm always fascinated by their backgrounds. Your background is a little unusual. How do you get from the Washington Post to the World Adventure? Let's start with... What, what were you doing at the Washington Post?
0: Yeah, so I, I, I went to the Washington Post. I actually interned at the Washington Post company between my first and second years at, at Harvard Business School. And mm-hmm. it was, for me, it was a perfect place because where do newly minted MBAs want to go? They want to go to industries that are in crisis. And there was no greater crisis in the two thousand early 2000s than the print newspaper. Industry. Wait, let, let
1: me interrupt you. Newly minted MBAs want to go to industries in crisis? I always thought they either wanted to go to high paying wall street jobs or high paying silicon valley jobs you're suggesting
0: other I, I, well I've, I've, i figured i could always end up in one of those high paying mm-hmm. coastal jobs but but for cutting my teeth right. i needed to manage a business through disruption and huh. and that to me was going to be such an interesting you know how how, how could i be the savior of of the great gray lady of of, of Washington, at least, and, and managing
1: a business through disruption sounds a lot like what VCs look for
0: in startups. It's you know I was I was reflecting on on the train uh, up here from from Washington, how much of of what I've been working on has been kind of cumulative. It's it's looking for these these how do you recognize disruption before it hits, and then mm-hmm. how do you manage through the disruption, and how do you and now from a from an investor's perspective, how do you manage that process sort of indirectly, because we're not in the company every day, but we're advising these companies about disruption that's either coming or disruption that hopefully they're creating with their products and services that they're launching.
1: Huh. Quite quite interesting. So that was your first experience in the workforce. How did you tack from that sure. to venture?
0: It's easy to talk about, but it but it's actually more visual. You know, I was sitting there one day at at the Washington Post and it's the only place I've ever worked where Sitting at your desk reading the newspaper was called product <laughs> research, right? And so I was reading Part an article. Job. I was reading an article about Steve Case and the firm that he just launched after leaving AOL Time Warner called Revolution. And mm-hmm. it was going to build these big iconic businesses that were going to tackle really tough problems around healthcare and, and financial services. And it just was so exciting to me. I said, I have got a I've got to plot my way there. I, you know, I did a little cyber stalking at the time, finding out where the revolution offices were. I did some LinkedIn searches to find who I knew there and ended up finding a woman that I went to business school with who was there, a couple of uh, free coffees for her and, and a glass of Chardonnay. and I found myself <laughs> with with a, an email introduction to one of the one of the founders and that's that's how it started.
1: And, and not I have to point out, unlike most of the big VCs, revolution didn't set up shop in New York or Boston or anywhere in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. They're pretty close to where
0: the Washington Post is headquartered. It's it was three blocks. It was the easiest commute for an interview <laughs> I'd ever had. Yeah, I mean you know the the Revolution story and 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 what Steve has built and, and others have built with Revolution is 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 really phenomenal in in the Washington D.C. area. It's you know it's been his home. AOL grew up in the in the Dulles corridor. Uh, it has has been a phenomenal explosion of just capital ingenuity in that area, and it has helped spawn you know. The, the grandchildren of AOL are now me- companies like Vox Media, which right. is you know run by Jim Bankoff, who was at AOL, or even Living Social, which was a huge company that was run by a former product manager at Revolution Health. So you're still seeing these spillover effects of, of that, that sort of huge entrepreneurial flashpoint with AOL.
1: Now, I think of that area as very heavily um, laden with telecoms and other networking firms, uh, is there any cross pollination with Revolution, or you have a very specific set of things you focus on, and telecom may not be it?
0: Well, I mean, g- given given sort of the AOL uh, DNA of our place, there's a lot of a lot of focus on 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 social networking, social media, and, and general consumerism. Like, how how do we how do we make the lives of consumers better, easier, faster, cheaper? By by investing in a lot of products that that sort of where the consumer is the end user, so a lot of our investments throughout time have been either B to C directly or B to B to C, where where the end user the the business might not necessarily be generated from the consumer, but the end user was a consumer because just you know the AOL DNA is really pervasive about how do you make it how do you make it easy for the average Joe to get online. That's right. exactly what AOL. The on did.
1: ramp to the internet. That's exactly. how we described AOL for forever. Um, so. Does that background change what you look at, how you look at it, or what you put company capital in? What's the impact of the AOL background? Is it, is it just so obvious as, hey, we're used to doing uh, B2C sort of investments, business to consumer sort of investments? Or is there a change in the entire process of what comes your way and, and the way you consider it?
0: Well, I, I guess the way that I'd most likely consider it, think about it, is we really approach things from a brand building perspective. How mm-hmm. do you build the brand so that it it it, it, is, it helps the consumer recognize that there's there's trust behind the brand, there's a simplicity, there's a real value add that's coming through through the the products that we're backing. I, I would also say that you know we're, we're also as we deploy capital and a lot of the deals that come to us are deals that that are. Are, are, are pretty focused on consumer stuff. We, we have a lot of uh, B2B, business-to-business investments as well. But, but you know, a lot of the deals that we see just end up being really strong consumer brands. Hmm.
1: I previously had uh, one of the partners in your firm, Steve Murray, on, and I discussed ever so briefly Rise of the Rest with him. And and he said, hey, I got a guy you should speak to about this. His name is David. I love this concept and I, and I have to just give a really brief explanation and then let you dive into this. So most of the venture capital money spent in the United States, it's San Francisco, it's Boston, it's New York, there are a handful of other places. But there are these huge stretches of entrepreneurs and innovators and technologists that it's a venture capital desert. What led to the development of Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, and tell us how it came about and how it actually operates?
0: Yeah, sure. It's 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 actually stems from a very simple premise. We believe that great entrepreneurs can start great businesses anywhere. And for so long in our country's history, or at least in the current, in the recent history, in the digital history, digital era, that 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 belief was epicentric to. the the coastal hubs of, as you said, San Francisco, New York, and Boston. And one of the things that we've been doing at Revolution when working with Steve, we started in 2014 these these bus tours, which became themed Rise of the Rest bus tours. And, And let's put a little flesh on
1: that. Half a million dollars, a bunch of people pile into a bus. You go to a specific city. What happens there?
0: It's 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 we started we kicked it off in Detroit and mm-hmm. we start in the morning we we convene the leadership I like to call it the, the suits and the T-shirts getting together for the first time we'll bring the, the the politicians the mayors the governors the the state and federal officers we'll bring the the heads of economic development the university presidents or business school deans we'll bring the heads of the, the the tentpole companies those big success companies that have kind of broken out and made a name for themselves mm-hmm. but we'll also bring the startups the T-shirts the guys who are guys and girls, guys and ladies who are cranking every day on building the next app or the next B2B SaaS business and bring them together to say, what's going on in Detroit, in Nashville, in Pittsburgh? What's happening in this city? What industries are flaring up? What are you you noticing about the flow of talent, the flow of capital, the flow of ideas into and even out of your city? We we follow that with visiting, going out and seeing that, talking to these companies and, and going and being in their physical spaces and meeting as many companies as possible in that venue. And then and then we end the day with a celebration. We do a pitch competition where the winner has historically received a hundred thousand dollar investment, but it's a way for the community to show the best of the future and in, you know, a handful of ideas. How that's evolved over time. We've done it now in thirty-eight different cities on really? seven, seven different tours. Wow! So we've we've literally been, you know, from from places like uh, York, Pennsylvania, down to New Orleans, which is near my hometown, uh, and seen seen this play out in so many different cities. And it's what you walk away from is both like the how different cities take. Entrepreneurship differently, and how they've had to deal with it differently, which is not not indifferent from how or indifferent from how they've had to to historically deal with economic ebbs and flows. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me is we see a lot of robotics in Pittsburgh, for example, because of the focus of Carnegie Mellon, right. but also the history of steel there, which kind of makes sense if you draw a narrow line between steel to robotics, right? You see a lot of advanced manufacturing in Detroit, which obviously makes a lot of sense. But interesting you'll see some in- some really interesting things like edtech in New Orleans. Why? Because Katrina forced New Orleanians to rethink their entire education system. And you saw a lot of Teach for America alums coming there to be helpful, but then being entrepreneurial about how do they how do they solve these problems. And these 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 Teach for America alums mostly started businesses in New Orleans focusing on education and education reform. So you see this this the legacy of the great industries of America and steel and manufacturing take place. But also you see the resurgence because of Current situations in, in places like New Orleans that, that, that launch these burgeoning industries in things like education technology.
1: So, what are some of the advantages of not being in these coastal urban centers? When you roll into a Detroit or a Pittsburgh, I have to imagine the costs. Of everything are are a fraction of what San Francisco is.
0: It's so funny. I was on a call just the other day with a company that relocated from Boston to Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and they were able to extend their burn by over six months just by redomiciling the company. Right. right? So I think that the, I think that there are a couple things. I think that obviously the cost of living differences is, are really different, and and. and and you can grow a company a lot farther on on the same amount of funding but i think you're also seeing the flow of talent i think you're seeing people graduate from you know the university of michigan or graduate from Georgia State or Georgia Tech, and say, you know what, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I want to go to these 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 coastal hubs. I wanna, I wanna stay here. I wanna become an entrepreneur, and it's easier because my network is here. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's a more livable, more uh, affordable, for definitely sure. more affordable environment. But, but the jobs are now starting to happen. It's, it's part of the flywheel that, that we're seeing this flow of talent boomerang back home because that's where they want to be. And, and, and I think that you know the combination of those two factors. With the flattening of of the, you know, it's never been cheaper to start a business because of, you know, things like.
1: A laptop and an internet connection and Amazon cloud and you're pretty much ready to go. You're ready to go. And, yeah. and
0: and that wasn't always the case, you know, a decade, 20 years ago. To, to say the least, there is a giant
1: um, demand for STEM jobs, even in the highest paying Silicon Valley and and uh, biotech in in Boston and a little bit of everything in New York do you run into an issue of shortage of of skilled ca- labor in in those towns that may not be known for their
0: their tech workers so i would you know that that's a it's a common issue we hear a lot and and i think that the real the real focus is for a lot of the early stage jobs, a lot of the you know junior folks, the the entry level jobs, they're coming right out of the university. Right. So it's it's no different from leaving Morgan St- Morehouse and coming up to New York to work at Morgan Stanley. These folks graduate from you know Vanderbilt and then go work directly into one of the the Nashville startup uh, mm-hmm. Nashville startups. I, I think. What it, about coders and and pro- statistical analysts and design?
1: I guess designers you could pretty much find.
0: anywhere. you can, you can find a lot of these folks anywhere. And I think you're, you're starting to see the recruiting of them away from the hubs. One of the big challenges for, for, for developers, particularly in, in the coastal hubs, is there's such a high opportunity cost on their talent. Mm-hmm. Right, if if you have a bad quarter as a startup or miss a couple of your milestones, half of your development staff is looking for another job because they recognize that you know unless they work for Google, no exit, they're out. Yeah, and and so but 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 in Madison or in Detroit, like you've got a stickier employee, and and we're seeing that those folks end up staying around longer, being more productive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're able to get a backyard and start a family. I mean, we I've, I I saw a deck one time where where a we the question was asked what about recruiting how hard is it to recruit and the 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 entrepreneur showed a slide of a birthday party and he says it's easy for me to recruit cuz i can promise this you can't <laughs> promise a backyard birthday party in san francisco or new york
1: and and i have to point out and and ask you about the board of advisors for um rise of the rest this is just an astonishing lift Jims Barksdale of of Netscape, Jeff Bezos, Tori Birch, Ray Dalio, Steve Case, John Doerr. I'm just I'm gonna stop there, but that's just an unbelievable list of investors. It goes on and on and on. What's it like working with a group that August and
0: esteemed? We are beyond privileged that 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 those those notable entrepreneurs, investors, business leaders among the best of our era have decided to join us on this mission. And you know, we think that the things that they saw in us and, and, and sort of the implicit mission of what we were doing of democratizing this flow of capital was really important. But we also think that they're, they're, you know, they're investors. The, these folks understand business and they understand that there's something going on in the heartland. There's something going on in the middle of America that, you know, either their personal portfolio didn't necessarily have, have a, a enough allocation. But also, you know, a lot of these folks are, fr- you know, David Rubenstein, one of our LPs, is from Baltimore, you know, Bezos is from New Mexico. Their their hometowns are these cities that have been left behind a lot of times. And of course, everybody wants to see their hometown flourish, and they mm-hmm. want to see the return of jobs to to a lot of these places where where they, they have they haven't seen the economic growth and, and vitality that 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 we've seen a lot in the, on the coasts. Fascinating.
1: So let's talk a little bit about private markets and and venture investing. Why is it that when we look at private pre-public companies, there's an expectation that the performance is going to be so much better than the public markets. You know, why shouldn't people just buy an index fund and forget about it is is how someone put the question to me. So I'm going to pass it to you. what are the potential upsides of, of venture investing?
0: Well, well I, I think, you know, the, the first thing is the, the appetite and uh, ability to allocate risk. Whereas, because of regulation, because of just the 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 cost and visibility of being public, it's harder for companies in the public markets to do that. But on the private side, we're, we're able to see things before they're a, before they're ready for prime time, mm-hmm. where they're still very risky and can completely flame out. Right, the, the the risk of every round of investment that we do at Revolution and Rise of the Rest, we we, we run the risk of the company calling us up one day saying, "Yeah, it didn't work," and <laughs> I, you know, as 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 painful as that is there luckily for us there's so many more calls that say hey it's working really well or it's we we think we've got eighty percent of it figured out and And then the risk has been greatly reduced, but the opportunity is still huge to come up with, you know, the next social network. you know, it, it's it's really risky when it's a little a little face app for Harvard University students. right? It's a lot less risky when Facebook is going from the United States into the world. and And, and I think that that's that's where the public markets do really, really well at assessing risk. Mm-hmm. I think the private markets do really, really well at sort of evaluating and managing risk. Before the drug is cleared FDA approval, so or- so
1: let's let's talk about those numbers. And I, I'm not going to hold you to a specific number, but my general understanding of the way venture investing works is your expectation is that the vast majority of investments are going to be that phone call. Hey, it didn't work out. How many break even or better, and how many are just outsized giant winners?
0: I mean, look. I, I think every, every venture capitalist underwrites a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we don't really talk about sort of how we think the the ebbs and flows of the market will will affect us. The the goal, obviously, for us is to have as few uh, as few zero returners as possible. And we think one of the benefits of of our geographic focus outside of the coast actually benefits us because, again, the dollar goes longer, and a, a little bit of the sort of midwestern. And southeastern, and 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 just the, the the ethos of the people is I'm not going to let this fail, mm-hmm. and 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 we you know we typically find companies that are farther along in their revenue cycles, so huh. there there are been they've been a lot more de-risked than than the proverbial napkin on a in a Silicon Valley coffee shop, right? And so we 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 see that really interesting. We also think look on the upside, and then the 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 the, the hockey stick side, we think that there's lots of opportunity outside of the the traditional the traditional code to see those, those companies really accelerate and have this explosive growth because be, because of the flows of capital or so are, are so have been so flattened um but i'm really i you know to answer your question i i think that there are a handful of, of companies that are, are, are going to go z- go to zero that's just the the, the nature of the beast um for for me it's all about protecting the middle and the upside and, and making sure that those companies that have a chance are introduced to the right customers and partners and 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 executives for recruiting so that they can actually skyrocket on onto some real successes
1: are you finding the valuations are better away from the coasts and that the ability to um, pick and choose your spots is a little easier than perhaps what people are dealing with in the Bay Area?
0: I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of um, less competitive valuations. Mm-hmm. I, I, think there's still, I think there's still froth in the market, in, 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 in every market. But I, we, we're, we are finding, by and large, our buy-in prices are a lot better than, than some of our, our, our Valley competitors and New York competitors are seeing in in the standard Series A or Series C round that, that we would invest in.
1: And, and since you brought up froth in the market, um, we've seen a number of unicorns, over a billion dollars in the private market, although a few of them seem to have gotten their wings clipped uh, recently. Um, how do you view this sort of cycle? How frothy is it? It doesn't feel to me like this is a 99, 2000 situation because so many of these companies seem to be either generating revenue or, heaven forbid, actually making profits. H- how do you look at that froth and the overall cycle?
0: So I was literally cutting my teeth in, in 99 during the, the, the first big, big sort of tech correction um, and then was working at Revolution during the the, the big economic recession of 08, 09 this this as you said seems different to me and i and i think it's because we're seeing these companies stay private longer and not rush for a public market exit and i think that that, that helps them figure it out mm-hmm. right like you know folks were financing on s s1, right. s1 threats in in 08 09 and and that didn't play out very well for them and i think you're seeing the companies take the time and and build the scale necessary to get it right when when the IPO actually ends up happening.
1: Hmm, Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of venture investing you guys do at um, Revolution. What sort of returns are you looking for on any specific uh, fund or any specific investment?
0: Yeah, you know, we're we're a traditional VC. You know, we want to put a dollar into the machine and get more than a dollar. Hopefully, hopefully a five or a ten right. coming back on uh, out of the machine. But 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 to me, the goal is also about building these great iconic companies that are tackling some of the toughest problems that that we as a society are facing around healthcare and education, transportation, food security, and things like that. Because I think that those are those are going to be big winners mm-hmm. for investors over food over the security. World. Having great and and open access to healthy, clean food options because we're you know we're, we're still trying to make sure that we have a, a healthy population and and there are lots of businesses that are working really hard to get it. farm to table is is is, is sort of the absolutely the, huge now the, the, yeah the the rule of the day but but just trying to figure out how do we make how do we do that at a sustainable scalable level
1: right farm to table in Brooklyn or or the city or even the suburbs are small restaurants and local farmers and it's very high-end and very shishi you're talking about a much broader approach and and I want to mention industries that you're looking to disrupt include food, healthcare, transportation, agriculture. These are like basic foundations of society. How can you disrupt those?
0: Yeah, so the way that we think about that and and we largely see opportunity through the lens of geography and that we think that, you know, the 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 if you're going to come out with the newest farm tech business, Kind of hard to see how that's gonna be a guy from Midtown Manhattan coming up with that or, to say or, the least. or or a lady from Silicon Valley who's gonna be able to come come up with those ideas who's never spent time on a farm. And we think that there are, you know, lots of experts in places like Des Moines or St. Louis who know a bit about farming and agriculture. We think that there are lots of manufacturing experts who, who come out of places like like Detroit and, and, and Ann Arbor who can help us build things as a as a country. And so we we think that those types of opportunities are gonna come perhaps outside of the valley. And outside of New York, and let, let me be clear, because it was one of the the criticisms we get at our fund a lot is about about bashing the valley, and and we are definitely not not. Bashers of the Valley. We appreciate Silicon Valley. They are the cathedral that every other city mm-hmm. aims to be, as it relates to sort of allocating capital and assessing risk for for early stage entrepreneurs. And and I tell you know a lot of the cities when we go on tour always ask us what's one thing that they do in the Valley better than what we do you know in pick a city. And the answer is always they accept failure and they accept mm-hmm. risk so differently than, you know, ninety percent of the cities in the country because because it's 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 just woven into the ethos of Silicon Valley. Things fail. But out of that, like like Phoenix's, you know, these great companies can emerge from entrepreneurs who've had massive failures. And so we Go ahead. We just we love to 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 highlight. You know, we're not we're not looking to steal share from New York or Boston or the Valley. We're looking to grow the denominator and say, you know, if seventy five percent of all venture capital went to three states last year Massachusetts, New York, and California, one percent of venture capital goes to a place like Michigan. One percent right. goes to Georgia. There's a lot of smart people in those states, and if we can just not not move California from 40, fifty to forty nine percent to lift Georgia from one to 2%, but just grow the denominator. Make so the that pie bigger. It, it, it really, because the beauty of what we do is, you know, as an asset class, venture largely creates jobs, right? When, when we mm-hmm. write it, when I'm investing in a company, the first thing I always ask is, what are you going to do with the money? And almost always the first answer is we're going to hire. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not we're going to close the factory to generate profitability or we're going to close the trade at a, you know, three or a a 20, 30 percent IRR. It's I am going to go hire 15 developers and two community managers and and a CMO because we're trying to build something great. And that to me, you know, that we all know in cities and politicians are well aware of things like the tech multiplier, where every technology job generates, you know, five to six general economy jobs. So when they go out and hire five people, that's you know another dentist that gets hired or an, another mm-hmm. restaurant that needs to open or a coffee place that needs to open on the corner to help sort of accommodate all of that growth in some of these heartland areas that have been losing for the last couple of years.
1: I, I, I love your take on, on failure and Silicon Valley. My favorite thing on some of their VC Bay Area websites is their list of... Here's, uh, yeah, we, we said no to Uber. We said no to Apple. We said no to Amazon. Like their list of failures. And it's a badge of honor. You're you're dead right on that. It's quite it's quite fascinating. So when you're putting together a portfolio of companies, when when I look at a portfolio of stocks, I want to see some U.S. companies, some emerging market companies, some European and, and Asia, uh, Japanese companies. How do you approach creating a portfolio? Do you think in terms of different sectors and a distribution of risk? Tell, tell us uh, about how you go about doing
0: that. Yeah, so we we're we're obviously geographically diverse because that's part of part of our our mandate. But but in that we 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 have lots of different industries. We have lots of different business models, and you know some are like, like we've talked about a little earlier. Some are direct to consumer. Some are business to business. And, and, you know, some are like will likely end up being pro cyclical, some will likely be counter cyclical. And so I, I feel like as we, you know, as we take a step up and look broadly at our portfolio, we do have a range of, of, of really interesting business models. in 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 targets of, of the economy that are different you know we've got some healthcare companies we've got some retail or e-commerce companies we've got a handful of food opportunities that we're, we're pursuing and so uh, food different from agriculture or one and the same we, we see food and agriculture as Perfectly commingled, and we've got some 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 longer plays in in the ag tech business, and we also have a couple of, uh, of of food brands that we're also really excited about. I remember reading, and it's a
1: couple of years ago already. I think it was Wired magazine. You, you talk about ag tech. There are these big commercial like John Deere tractors, and people pretty much created a using an iPhone and a satellite receiver a way to self program these tractors to do a whole field with nobody sitting in the cab. Long before there were self-driving cars and and trucks, it seems that tractors were pretty much the first to do that. When you talk about ag tech, is, is that the sort of stuff you're referring to? Or is it more specific um soil chemistry and material science and things along that
0: or a little bit of everything it's a little bit of everything i'll 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 give you an example we're investors in a business called app harvest app harvest is based in pikeville kentucky Mm -hmm. and what this business does and it's so fascinating uh the the founder and entrepreneurs is just this really dynamic guy and he's found he's basically turning abandoned coal mines into hydroponic farms Mm -hmm. hydroponic greenhouses and he's hiring former coal workers to come work these new farms on on what used to be a coal mine. And so to me that's that's the 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 essence of ingenuity. Like how do you take abandoned, awful coal mines and turn them into really high high quality produce that by by virtue of being in Pikeville, Kentucky is like less than a day from ninety percent of the United States. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's how you deliver a better, higher quality product to a greater degree of people than then while doing it in a way that lifts up a community that's been, you know, by almost by definition, sort of impacted by the change in in sort of the, 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 the economy.
1: How do you respond when someone comes along and pitches you something like that? My immediate reaction is, growing food in coal mines, that sounds horrible. How do you get by that initial, wow, that's pretty wacky and out there? Or have you trained yourself to sort of say, huh, well, that's interesting,
0: The hardest thing about being a venture capitalist is to always uh, avoid that initial gut reaction of that'll never work because you'll that will never work yourself to death in this business. And 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 for me, the question always ends up being, well, how can that work? Imagine the possibilities. Imagine how like like how can these ingredients be put together? You know, flour, sugar, eggs, milk independently would all taste gross but you put them together and you come out as a cake how (laughs) can you assemble these ingredients to to be a cake as opposed to you know a mud pie right and and i think that's that's one of the 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 challenges we face every day is is because nothing's ever going to work and and we're we're looking at ideas and a powerpoint deck talking to founders with with hopefully some high degree of domain expertise because it gives them the authority to talk about you know Hydroponic farming and abandoned coal mines. Right. But, but, but you've got to start looking through and saying, all right, well, if, if, if this guy is able to get you know, this technology and, and maybe find this scientist and maybe pull together this other expert, like he's got a, a, a very credible shot at making this all work. Huh. And, and and I love doing this at, at the seed stage, right? And one of the other benefits of, of our job is we get to see this stuff before it's really ready for mass consumption. We typically like to invest... Post product market fit, but 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 before before sort of mass adoption. And, mm-hmm. and so it's really interesting to see sort of the reaction of the first handful of consumers and, and 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 customers of some of these products. How do they react? How 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 resonant is the product as as it's starting to hit the market?
1: You know, the parallel in the public markets is simply when someone tells me an idea about a stock and my immediate reaction is, ooh, that's a dog probably means the worst of it is already priced in. I've taught myself to recognize that over the years, but you're talking about stuff that's so high concept and so interesting. I find that fascinating your response is, how can we make that work? We have been speaking with David Hall. He is a partner at Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, part of Revolution partners uh, if you enjoy this conversation be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue to discuss all things venture capital we love your comments feedback and suggestions you can write to us at mib at bloomberg.net follow me on twitter at ritholtz you can check out my daily column on bloomberg.com i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much for doing this. This is really fascinating stuff. I am endlessly intrigued by the ideas um, within the venture community. And you guys are actually disrupting the way traditional venture capital is done. It's amazing that the vast majority of the states in America don't have a whole lot of venture investing. And I really I really am fascinated by that. So I didn't mention Steve Case, who is the founder of AOL. really this seems to be his brainchild. Is that a, a fair assessment?
0: Absolutely yeah
1: so so how did this come about and and how was this announced? Was it supposed to be a one-off when Steve first um, did this or ha- ha- give us a little little background on that
0: yeah so i i think that the notion of the rise of the rest started as as a, just a, an interesting slogan for how how can we engage some of these communities and and find find great entrepreneurs find great deal flow for our funds but as we started to uncover what's going on in these communities it it, it grew to its own it, 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 it spawned its own sort of life and its own uh, own being. And it was really interesting to become part of these communities. And what it ended up being for us was a great way to meet and have authentic relationships with the people on the ground in a lot of these cities that were building the businesses and supporting the entrepreneurs. It's it's interesting. It's so great to meet the the entrepreneurs uh, support organizations, the, the ecosystem building organizations like the accelerators and the incubators, which have really exploded over the last, couple of years and 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 understand how they are supporting and and having to do it differently and often very grassroots in a lot of these communities where it isn't sort of the thing that you do and 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 having that that drive to keep going and saying you know what we're going to we're going to bring our we had 8 co- companies in our last accelerator class we're going to expand it to 10 companies in this right. next cycle like that's really interesting and so what we were doing and what Steve led and you know Steve's a, a, I, I've come to respect him more and more the longer I've worked with him. I've been working with him for over a decade now. And, you know, this is... Th- there are a lot of people of Steve's caliber that spend their time doing lots of other things. Steve, Steve invests in entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. That's his passion and that's what he does. And and it's been great to learn from him on on having that be part of not only his legacy, but his passion to invest in entrepreneurs and, and traffic in these great ideas and great future... I mean, he's, he's one of the most accomplished futurists I know about thinking about where the where the ball's going and trying to sort of marshal the resources to be there. And in in revolution is I think the 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 symphony that he's been able to create by bringing the right people together to help execute on that that vision of, of, of really Thinking about the future and thinking about how entrepreneurs can drive and be change change agents in the future, and again, some of the bigger problems that we're going to be facing.
1: Which is why I would guess that list of notables who are on the the who are investors in and and board members of Rise of the Rest. I'm not going to read the names. Go to their website and look at it. It's the most mind blowing list of investors I've ever seen associated with one. Organization in my entire life, it, it's it's astounding, and I, I don't even want to build up the hype too much. Just go go to the website and check it out. Google Rise of the Rest Fund um, investors or advisors, and it's it's really astonishing. You mentioned um, incubators and other types of accelerators. You know we know about those in cities like Boston and New York and San Francisco, and there were a number of some of which actually went public. There were a number of of incubators that had been around for a while. Uh, Where are you finding incubators outside of the coasts and are they private? Are they public? Are they private public joint ventures? Tell us a little bit about.
0: Yes, that. simply um, all, all the yeah, above. Yeah, you, you find it takes different different types of organizations to help support the the, the ecosystems, right? I mean, there, there are quite a few, and most the majority, overwhelming majority, I'd say, are, are private enterprises that people are running and hopefully running for profit. Mm-hmm. Some include co working, so that there's like a, a real business model there. Others are, are when you in- say co working.
1: Um, I immediately think of WeWorks, but that's not what you're necessarily referring well, to. Very
0: similar, like you, 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 the entrepreneur rents desk space, and so that becomes the the revenue model, the business model for the co-working space, and helps to feed the incubator or accelerator. But but we have seen dozens of models of how this can work, and, and you know, and I think a lot of them are specific for the company, specific for the 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 city or geography. But the goal is. Unlocking entrepreneurship—it's mm-hmm. taking the the man or woman who's working for one of the the big companies in the city, saying, "You know what? I can. I, I'm I've been working at Procter and Gamble forever in Cincinnati, and I love what I do. But boy, I have a great e-commerce opportunity that I'd love to go and, and start. And now there's a vehicle for them to extract themselves from that big corporation and like go start a startup somewhere. So let's let's
1: talk about some of the cities you've been to. You mentioned Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati. Um, New Orleans. What other cities have have you guys invested in, and how do they vary um, from location to location, geography to geography?
0: Yeah, so we've you know we've been you've we, named a few of the cities, but cities from as small as a couple hundred thousand people to mm-hmm. as large as you know three or four million people. We, we our most recent seventh Rise of the Rest tour, three to, or four
1: million. That's like Chicago. Is that what we're talking well, about? Well, uh,
0: you know we we went to Dallas. Chattanooga, Birmingham, Memphis, and Louisville, Kentucky, on our last tour. That's a great cross section of the types of cities that we go to. Some Big, you know, big major cities that, that everybody has heard of. Others, you know, all these cities, are people cities people have heard of, but but others less well known for being tech hubs.
1: Like I don't think of Chattanooga as a tech hub.
0: And you'd be surprised to find out that Chattanooga has such a strong logistics tech industry. Really? Where, Why is that? Well, well I, I think it's there the proximity of Chattanooga to both, you know, obviously Atlanta, which is a huge clearly because
1: you have um uh, who uh, you have a, a couple of airlines, a couple of airlines. Head-voters- There a couple of uh, transportation companies, but then
0: you go up to Chattanooga, and it's it's close it's 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 close to lots of that transportation tech hub. But also, a lot of freight travels through Atlanta uh, through Chattanooga, Uh and even the winner of our Rise of the Rest tour in in Chattanooga this year was a company called Freight Waves that is Waves, not Freight Way. Freight freight Waves, waves. yeah. Like, and what that company is doing is building the technology platform to help shippers. Properly assess and 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 uh, book freight. So it's a data platform that helps them determine the the freight cost because of all sorts of things like fuel and temperature and load uh-huh. that's being being transported between any two endpoints. Hard industry huh. that was basically done analog right. up until these guys have come along and helped them help them digitize this and create a fulsome platform for for the the transmission of f- freight.
1: Huh. That that's quite fascinating. What. What cities have surprised you? That seems like an interesting surprise. What else has really surprised you, either in... Their focus, or any
0: other way. Yeah, so I'd say one of the 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 big surprises to me was Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, Indianapolis is a, obviously a great city, a storied American city, and what one of the things and one of the big highlights is there was a business there called Exact Target that sold to Salesforce for multiple billions of dollars. The founders of Exact Target, after they sort of spun out of the Salesforce uh, world. Double down, triple down in Indianapolis, and and created an ecosystem there focused on B2B business-to-business software as a services companies, mm-hmm. and so they they've really like anchored themselves around this notion of B2B SaaS is going to be what Indianapolis is known for, at least from a technology a, a startup perspective, and it's become a hub. They've got a, a, a the the founders there created a company called the High Alpha Studio. They've got a fund there. They invest in in handfuls of companies that are coming. Out of Indianapolis, and and huh. who would have thought, right? right. And, and it was so, it was such a sort of great ecosystem that Salesforce, after their acquisition of this company, Exact Target, moved its HQ 2 to Indianapolis, and now has one of the largest buildings uh, in the city of Indianapolis is by sales was is, is is owned and, and operated by Salesforce, and has a couple thousand employees in Indianapolis. And so it's it's amazing to see how that city has kind of really you know really e- exploded in growth. Around a couple of founders who said we're going to double down in our in our hometown.
1: That that's amazing. What? Give me one more city that kind of was like, wow, I didn't expect to see that. An overwhelming set of
0: choices, or yeah, no. It, well, I, I'm trying to come up with a really good good example for you. I, I, I mean, I. I'll I'll go back to 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 Chattanooga. I was really surprised. I mean, they they you know there there are a handful of just really great companies There's a company that we we're not investors in, but but it's it's a logistics and a moving company called Bellhops, based in Chattanooga. That's a really strong company. And seeing how a city that that's not the largest city by by any stretch of the word has really focused on building this really dense community. We have this 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 phrase that, that that we use a lot called network density, which you know Network density. Network density, which means how, how can you how can you create this this tight network of people, of entrepreneurs, of 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 Uh, fans of entrepreneurship bring them together and have your little city play a lot bigger or at least have the startup part of your little city play a lot bigger right and Mm -hmm. and what they've been able to do and by bringing you know Funds and startup accelerators in the Chattanooga area together, they've created this strong network where everybody knows each other, and all the entrepreneurs are, are are talking about, you know, best practice sharing and and recruiting new people. When new people come in, they meet a handful of the executives at other companies that say, you know, come move from Chicago to Chattanooga. We'll we'll show you around. We'll we'll take you out on the on a on a boat, and you know, really wine and dine you as a community to say that you're joining our community. Not necessarily Hmm. just joining this company.
1: Interesting. You mentioned Chicago. Have you spent any time in the West Loop? That that's a little bit of a tech hub. That seems to be exploding
0: we're really excited I have a, one of my one of my uh, portfolio companies that we invested in earlier this year is a Chicago based company called Foxtrot that's mm-hmm. on a trend that I love on the future of retail Foxtrot is reimagining the convenience store you, you huh. we, we all know lots of convenience stores and, and and obviously we're sitting in New York City where where the corner bodega is, is sure. you, people people love their their corner bodegas but in a lot of America there there isn't that that sort of deep passion around uh, around your convenience store foxtrot does half of its business through mobile app orders that get delivered to your door in in you know in less than an hour and it's a great business perfect for launching in a city like chicago Hmm. and and we're really excited about that opportunity because we think that you know there hasn't been a lot of disruption in the convenience store market in over a generation and and being able to have really cool products ordering ordered at the tap of a phone but also be, be your corner store that you walk past and get a bagel and a coffee on your way to work in the morning is, is actually pretty huh. cool
1: that that's interesting so i wanted to i was going to ask you how you source companies but i'm going to change that question a little bit when you announce hey here's our new tour and we're going to these five cities does that open a floodgate of inquiries or are you still flipping over rocks to find where the next great entrepreneur
0: is when we go to a city and we announce that we're going to come to the city, we we get scores of applications to participate even in our pitch competition. Mm-hmm. We're able to put those companies in our database and start to track them. Um, we, we, we really have... I, I think have taken a more data-driven approach to looking at at lots of different companies across the country because it's the only way that we're going to be able to do it with a relatively small team at scale and, and we also rely heavily on our network partners so mm-hmm. when we go to these cities we meet the local VCS and the regional VCS and we ask them hey you know are there wh- what are the two or three companies that you guys are most excited about in Raleigh Durham and they're happy to tell us the two or three companies that they're most excited and you do that to two or three local funds and you've got a you know a dozen companies at the end of the day that that are you know ones that that tend to bubble above the uh, some of the rest. but but it's also a temporal thing, right? You come back six months later and it's a new batch of companies. So right. we, we, we love to maintain these really authentic relationships with with the, the partners and investors in the community. and then that helps introduce us to the the entrepreneurs that are really making a difference.
1: Huh. what what about competition? You mentioned other VCs and areas. Are you at all concerned that you're going to start running into competition in some of these places, or is it still a sort of cooperative friendly? um group of other players in the same space who might be co investors in the same companies.
0: Yeah, I I, I see them more as, as collaborators in competition. We, we we need people. We're we're not gonna write a full investment round. If a company's doing a five million dollar series uh, mm-hmm. seed round, we're not gonna do that entire round. So if if we do some of it, we're gonna need other people to help participate. And it's always helpful to have you know, local eyes and ears on the ground who know the company or know the founder or know the, have domain expertise in in the business. And so being able to bring all of those folks into the round is is one of the reasons why we're doing this. We we're able to be massive connectors of of you know if you, you might be a healthcare expert fund based in Nashville and if we find a healthcare deal in in St. Louis, we'd love to bring you guys into that deal because it just only helps make that deal, helps de-risk the deal to our limited partners and right. our and our fund, but also helps potentially expand that that the access for that company.
1: So it's not just network density, but then it's the network effect. Cross pollinating from city to city. You got it. Huh, quite interesting. Um, do you have a target for number of investments you're going to make each year, or is it really you just kind of take it as it comes?
0: Yeah, we. I, I think we'll do about 100 150 investments out of this fund over the next couple of years. But we're we don't have a specific target. We we again are being super opportunistic about about finding great companies in in in, in these regions.
1: And and you mentioned this fund. My assumption is. This is set up as a traditional VC, G, uh, general partners and limited partners. Any thoughts on is there going to be a rise of the rest two, rise of the rest three? Are you going to stack that down down the years? What happens when you basically say, okay, we're we're filled up?
0: You know, I'm focused on deploying the 150 million that our limited partners have invested in, in in us in in this fund, and 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 hope to really make a difference, and obviously create a lot of value in in in, in the fund that we're in. You know, who knows what the future is going to hold, but we're super excited about about the 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 limited partners trusting us and the capital that we're deploying into what I think are a, a fantastic array of companies that that showcase the best of of what's going on, and you know. At least forty-seven of the fifty states. Although we do have investments in California and in in uh, in, in New York, but but not necessarily in Silicon Valley or, gotcha. or New York City.
1: And you know, I have danced around this question, and and you you came close to answering it, but I haven't asked it. So let me just blurt it out. Um, I have to imagine there are a lot of misconceptions about venture investing in general. You referenced the misconception about your relationship with Silicon Valley. But just speaking broadly, what do you think is is some of the biggest misconceptions about how venture capitalists operate, what they invest in, uh, just generally speaking?
0: So I I think from from the capital deployment side, the biggest misconception is that it's easy is that you just you you sit around listening to a couple of pitches and whenever something rings How you, hard could it you write a check and i mean and, and you know we we apply science we apply data to 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 our decision making and you know and and we we do a lot of work i mean we're it's not just come in for a pitch and come out thirty minutes later with, with the check, right? I mean we the, the closest we get to that are, are in our pitch competitions, but 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 for our our, our our normal investments, we're we're doing due diligence and we're asking big questions about the market opportunity and, and about the founder's domain expertise and about uh, all all sorts of ebbs and flows of the real market opportunity in the business model. I think from the capital receiving perspective, I, I think the biggest misconception is that the, a lot of entrepreneurs have great companies, but they're not necessarily venture backable. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's this, this misconception that, that venture is, is the, the financing source of, 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 of kings. And, and you know, I always tell whenever I, I start having conversations and talk to particularly large audiences of, of entrepreneurs, I, I say the first best source of financing is revenue. Right. right, revenue doesn't take any of your company. You don't have to pay any of it back. And if you can scale your company through revenue, that's best. But a lot of a lot of folks have really good businesses that just aren't necessarily venture cap or, 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 or VC backable businesses because they're either not growing at a scale or have a broad enough, large enough market opportunity. I mean, typically venture capitalists are looking for billion dollar billion mm-hmm. dollar businesses, and and we have a specific model to to help. To help define what that means, and you, you look at companies like Uber, it's totally reimagining the taxi dispatch industry. Period. Mm-hmm. That's a billion. That's e- it's easy to see that multi-billion-dollar
1: mo- global unstoppable. But force. there,
0: there are lots of there lots of really good, really small, really great small businesses where the proprietors are going to be millionaires but those aren't necessarily always great venture-backable businesses. Sure.
1: Makes a lot of sense. The one question I... Uh, before I get to my favorite questions, the one question that has been um, annoying at me has been this. What cities have you not gotten to that you're looking forward to going and, and doing uh, a Rise of the Rest tour through?
0: So, like I said, we've been to 38 cities. Y- you, you can do the math and know that there are lots of cities that we haven't been to. I You know, we we are in the process of thinking through and and plotting out our our next tour but we I'll leave as a nugget and we'll, we'll make sure that Barry, you're on the list of people that we tell when we, we decide where we're, where we're headed the bus to next. But it's, it's you know, we, we look to find cities where there's been some, some entrepreneurial, some startup activity where there've been a few successes and, and there are companies to point to where there's a willingness by all of the stakeholders from the local university to the politicians who are leaning in on saying, yeah, we, we support startups. We, we want that type of ecosystem to be in our town and we want to we try to have those those cities flare up on our map and and get in front of us and we have we've got we've perfected the way of getting it done now and and we'll 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 let you be among the first to know where we're headed next I'm, i'm looking forward to it
1: all right so let's jump to some of my favorite questions uh we ask all of our guests tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background
0: so that's a pretty easy one for me, and, and it's, it, it always surprises you. I want, I want to see the look on your face. I'm sorry you guys can't see it uh, who are listening, but <laughs> I am a former competitive swimmer.
1: I was going to say that. You know, I was going to guess that. Yeah, no. yeah. Har- so
0: har- for-, hard to, for, for those of you guys listening, I am six foot tall, 250-something pounds. He's a solid.
1: I thought you were going to tell me you were like a middle linebacker, not competitive swimmer. What not- what'd you
0: swim? I, I swam. Uh, I started at, at age six and swam through college, actually through first couple of years of college. But what was your stroke? Uh, I, I did a lot of um, medley and sprint freestyle because mm-hmm. I just I, obviously I'm not going to do distance. I definitely don't have a body for distance. Um, do you still swim? Uh, recreationally, and mm-hmm. you know, have take the kids out. But for me, it was such an important thing because number one, it's it's the perfect both individual and team sport mm-hmm. and so it really teaches you how to how to be more a member of the team but also how to really focus and then the second thing for me that it really taught was how to the, it it showed the direct link between preparation and execution right mm-hmm. you, you, you go to practice you work hard in practice your times get lower you win and 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 this the side benefit was it also taught me to deal a little bit with with defeat and losing because mm-hmm. it just it's important for six and seven and 12 year olds to learn that also important for 40 somethings to, to learn that
1: tell us about some of your early mentors who uh, affected the way you look at the world of uh, investing
0: so the, the first obviously and i'm sure this is something you hear a lot is it was my dad i mean mm-hmm. he he's a dentist a just retired dentist but but uh, an entrepreneur a a, a a small business owner and my first job was working in this office and seeing seeing how it's it's a daily 24 seven opportunity thinking about, you know, the practice and the building and the employees that you've got working for you, but also seeing the benefits that come from working really hard. And so he, you know, we, we, we working and work was always important and stressed in our, in our, in our home and, and being thoughtful and being really good to, to the people that work for you was also a really important character, uh, uh, character building that, that I saw f- through my dad every day. Um, my uncle, uh, Eugene Flood, is a, was, was, was working on Wall Street, kind of opened my eyes. I worked for several years after college at Morgan Stanley, um, huge mentor to bring me, take a little Southern boy from Louisiana uh, and expose him to sort of the, the machinations of Wall Street was really a, a big eye-opener and career changer for me.
1: So let's talk about venture investors. Who affected the way you approach... Deploying capital as a as a venture capitalist.
0: So this is going to sound a little contrarian, but um, the again, having worked at the Washington Post Company under Don Graham and the Graham family, who were heavily influenced by Buffett, Mm -hmm. you know, who was
1: a board member and a shareholder for for a very long time, time,
0: yeah. yeah. And and but the essence of that philosophy is kind of invest in what you know, and 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 don't 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 try to 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 force fit an idea or a company in a certain in a certain milieu where where it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna go where the company needs to go. And and and, and I really appreciate particularly the the notion that that you know if 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 you don't understand it you can't invest in it. And so you've got to be smart about figuring out like what what makes sense. How do you follow the money from the customer's wallet to the cash register? And if it takes too many hops and starts to get a little blurry, then that's it's hard for me to want to back that type of company. Hmm.
1: Uh, everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, venture investing, or otherwise.
0: So the, the book that I really like and have gone back to, it's a little tiny, thin book, but it's called The Inner Game of Tennis. And it's by a guy by, by the name of Timothy Galway. And it basically talks about how do you how do you maintain high levels of performance while still being relaxed and and sort of allow your your inner game, the, the game that you not the game that you necessarily practice for, but what happens when you're on the court playing? How do you how do you perfect that game as opposed to the very mechanical of throw the ball up, hit the serve and, and make sure the ball goes in to like you're playing against an opponent. How do you make that, how do you allow yourself to relax and, and practice that? And it's, it's so the, the implications of the book well beyond the tennis court have mm-hmm. been huge for me from, from a business perspective on how do you maintain intensity while still being relaxed and thoughtful about, about how you can approach the game from a different angle.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating. Any other books you want to mention?
0: Um, I just finished reading recently a book called Disintegration by Eugene Robinson, who's Uh at the Washington Post. It's a fascinating take for me on on the sub-segmentation of black America. Basically, Mm -hmm. African Americans for... For so long, have been considered by politicians, by by marketers, to be relatively monolithic. But A uniform block—they're all going to vote this way. They're all going to do. All this. All going to buy this kind of product. Right. But, but in reality, Robinson points out that there are four different types of real subgroups: the the elite, so the Obamas and the Oprahs of the world; mm-hmm. the 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 middle class, which is the the broad sort of group of us that are African American, college educated, and who are who are working and living parts of the American dream. But then. The, the two that are really interesting to me were the emergent class so this is the the group mm. of folks that are are Biracial or uh, biracial with with African American being part of that 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 composition, but also the African diasporan immigrants who are first, second, third generation immigrants who have a totally different view of themselves because some of them aren't necessarily African Americans. They might be Nigerian Americans, right. but 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 the 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 notion that that they see the world and they they act and, and interact with the world differently. And then the final group was the what he calls the abandoned which are the folks that just have really been left behind and are are the folks that that we hear about and read about frequently in the news and it's just understanding that 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 black america is is really sub segmented into these different groups that have you know obvious similarities but but some pretty stark differences was a really fascinating read so
1: some of the data on that fourth group is really very discouraging in terms of employment gains wage gains it's just the numbers have been Pretty uh pretty intimidating. I, I I'm gonna definitely take a look at that book. I have to ask you if you play tennis,
0: um and, and if the book was at all helpful. If it it, 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 it you know, (laughs) my results not necessarily withstanding, but to me, yeah, it was absolutely, that's, that's, it's, it's one of my passions. I, you know, I try to get out as frequently as I can. I just registered for a new flex league, so I'm excited to get out on the court and and, and work out some of the cobwebs, but yeah, I, I, the, the, the ability to, to, Relax on the court and focus, not focus on the mechanics of getting in the right position, but just play and breathe Mm. and, and, and then control the things that you can't, that you can't, that you can control, right? Like, so you can control how many times you bounce the ball and you, and and it really teaches you to focus on the things that you can control because there's so much that you can't control. So in that moment, focus on breathing. And focus on where you want to hit the ball, as opposed to the exact mechanics of how you're going to stand and how you're going to position your racket and your feet to hit the ball. it's, it's a it's a great read. It's been, the book is was published in the '70s and has been used. I mean, like folks like Billie Jean King swear uh-huh. by it. And it's it, the, the the author's now written several other books about like you know the inner game of golf and the inner game of business and things like that. But but for me, the application as somebody who loves tennis and loves playing tennis into business, into my personal life, has been a really helpful that, guide.
1: That, that's fascinating. I am late to the game of tennis. I only started playing within the past few years. Um, and my one of my biggest issues, I do these drills on Monday nights, and most of the, I shouldn't say most, about two-thirds of the, it's men's drills, two-thirds of the guys are considerably younger than me. And then there's a group of guys who are in their 50s and 60s most of whom are are either good or very good. And the problem with playing with the young studs are that they want to crush the ball. It's baseball. And as much as I laugh at them, it's like unforced error, unforced error. When you're playing with big hitters, you can't help. The crowd sucks you along. And suddenly I'm trying to smash the ball and it's a constant effort. I love that idea of relaxed intensity. Don't try and kill the ball. Play within yourself. and But you you mentioned that, and I immediately went to that, I'm going to crush this ball Roger
0: Federer style. But you're not Roger Federer. You
1: don't have that swing.
0: Yeah. yeah. Just get, get the ball across the net, the place that you want it to go. If you can hit the ball where you want it to go, you will nine times out of ten win the point. Right? And if you, and if you can focus on just that, hitting the ball where you want it to go.
1: Well, before I learned the proper mechanics, I could literally put the ball anywhere on the court. Yeah not with power and not with speed but I, I I could kiss any line I wanted to once I learned the proper way to stroke a ball that skill set took a step back as you start learning the mechanics and becoming more comfortable with it
0: but um it's like Mike Tyson says though all of that preparation goes out when you get hit in the face that's exactly
1: that's exactly right and and that testosterone poisoning that competitive spirit, these are drills. It doesn't there's no winning and losing, who cares? Right. You get sucked right into it. It's the most amazing bit of, of crowd psychology. Uh, it, it's I'm I'm going to look into that book cuz it's definitely uh, appealing. And 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 once again we digress about tennis instead of talking about what we should be talking about. Um so let's talk about the venture capital industry. What's changed since you've joined the industry and is this for the better
0: or the worse? Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing has just been the the influx of data into the industry. You know, it's it's funny we we require and, and suggest and advise our companies to leverage data in your decision making. Right. And I think for the for the first time now, we've got huge sets of big data that help us understand and rank and 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 target entrepreneurs. And so it's it's important for us to to leverage this data because it, it helps us it helps us make better decisions and helps us be more algorithmic about our decision making, but it also really helps us, Recognize that that we can bring in more entrepreneurs of color and women entrepreneurs into the fold because we're not necessarily relying on just network pattern matching from from guys who went to Harvard or guys who went to Stanford who all look alike. And so it, it's I'm I'm happy that that that's the case because it's making the table bigger and adding allowing us to add more seats to the table of, of entrepreneurs and broaden that scope of entrepreneurs, particularly for as we were talking about earlier, some of the people who who have been left behind mm-hmm. e- even further. So when we look
1: at um, the sort of demographics of, of who venture investing is is giving money to, specifically, do you think revolution is more diverse, more gender friendly, more people of color friendly than the typical, let's call it Stanford-based uh, or Stanford-located VCs?
0: I, I don't know what what other other vCs uh, uh, entrepreneurs look like. I'm very proud that data is not broadly shared to say the least. Yeah, and, and I, but I'm very proud that that we we've got quite a few entrepreneurs of color, women entrepreneurs. Um, in, in our portfolio and and they've performed thus far really well we, we one of our exits was by an african-american female entrepreneur who had this business part pick that was sold to amazon and park pick part pick uh-huh. uh it's 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 like shazam for visual search so uh-huh. take a picture of something and it'll run its algorithm and say this is most likely a screw and right. you can you know and and amazon acquired the business a couple of years ago and you know it and, and so when I use the Amazon app and say
1: I want to see this where you could take a photo of something
0: there are parts of the Amazon app I, I don't know exactly how how it's been filtered into the Amazon application or a- Amazon but that basic sort concept algorithm but yeah that basic concept huh. is part of that part of that uh, part of the Amazon DNA now and you know and i'm I'm just very proud of that I'm very proud that we you know we we look at, at a broader we have a broader aperture for for who is an entrepreneur and 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 what types of investments we're willing to make. Tell us
1: what else you're really excited about these days?
0: Um, I teased it a little bit uh, earlier but I'm really excited about thinking about the future of retail you know we every, every e-commerce is eating the world yet 85% of the things that we buy are still things that you buy sort of in person. And we, we're investors in, I mentioned this company, Foxtrot, which is mm-hmm. redoing the, the convenience store. We're also investors in a, in a company called Neighborhood Goods. It's a Dallas-based company that's looking to sort of reinvigorate the department store model. You walk into a department store today, you see more employees than you do customers walking around. And that's because it's it's become so transactional. Uh, you, you want a white shirt? You go to the department store, you buy a white shirt. But if you wanted to go and see what's there... You don't naturally think to go walk through a department store and and sort of right. browse and be be and and have have an experience and and what what neighborhood goods is looking to do is is sort of bring back some of that experience it's almost really a throwback to the way that the department stores used to be where you'd get you know you could go and browse and look at at, at something that's seasonally appropriate but also have a bite to eat at the lunch counter and you know have a, a broader array of of things to buy and and so these guys are curating lots of digitally native brands that are looking for retail points of presence because it's become obvious with businesses like Warby Parker like having uh-huh. stores actually matters because people want to touch and feel and experience your product but then there are other larger and more mainstream brands that are looking for new ways to activate and and show off their products to their their existing consumers as well as new consumers and then you see lots of like um makers, local folks, local craftsmen that have cool products that they want to share. They don't have a, a big showcase uh, arena to do that. And then obviously you wrap that all around with food and community, music, art. And it's a really cool installation in, in sort of how, how we think, or at least the company thinks, consumers want to shop in the next next generation. Hmm. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So I, w- I was a banker and, and you know, there are there, there no, no <laughs> limit to the failure stories there. But one particular moment where I, I, I consistently th- said, yeah, I understood what I was doing and had no idea what I was doing. And I got it wrong. I, the, the end result of the analysis was completely wrong. And for that, for me, was, was a hard failure to take because I never wanted to be the guy that got it completely wrong. But what it led me to understand and recognize is that I, I'm not going to walk away if I don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like ask the, don't assume that uh, ask the dumb questions. You know, in in a world like like banking, you get caught up in the jargon, and folks were dropping all sorts of terms I had no idea what they meant. And instead of asking, I just tried to figure it out. And two o'clock became four o'clock became six o'clock in the morning, and I'm still looking at the blank screen. And it was it was an embarrassing, awful failure, but it was the last time I ever had that failure.
1: Huh. Interesting. Um, what do you do for fun? We know you play tennis, but outside of that, tell us what you do to keep either mentally sharp or fit outside of the office.
0: So yeah, tennis is the main thing. I've got two young kids and try to spend as much time with those folks and, and you know, they're, they're, they're young boys and all they love to do is run around. and, And so I, I, I get a good workout with, with those folks, but, uh, it's, it's, it's It's harder these days to find that time to, to get sharp and, and I really I struggle with it. It's one of the, the things that I really work on, but but I'm recognizing more and more now that I've got to take the hour or two hours for myself and either go play tennis or go ride on the peloton or whatever and and, and try to try to sweat it out a little bit. If
1: a uh, millennial or recent college grad came up to you and said they were interested in a career in venture investing, what sort of advice might
0: you give them? I would say start a business. Really? Become an entrepreneur. I, I, the, I, I don't think that this was given much to my generation of, of, of college graduates. And I think, again, as we talked about, the cost of starting a business or nothing and the opportunity cost of doing it when you're 22 – it, you know, if you I, fail, you dust yourself off and on to the
1: next. Go so on to
0: you know, go get a regular job then. Right. But but you you have so few opportunities to start a business and live off of ramen noodles for <laughs> for a year with your three three best mates in in a in a, in a, in a tiny either co work co living facility or or small cheap apartment. Starting a business, all you need is good Wi Fi. Like you said, good Wi Fi and and an Amazon Web Services account and you got a business going. You're, you're so ready to go. I think that they should start businesses. That's the best way to learn this job is by being an entrepreneur.
1: And and my final question, what is it that you know about venture capital investing today that you wish you knew fifteen years ago or so when you were getting
0: started? I, I wish I appreciated more how much this was an apprenticeship business. Right. How much you've got to learn from people and you've got to you've got to sit there and, and sort of re- really it's it's hard to do this unless you've been an entrepreneur and have lots of domain expertise. Mm mm-hmm. But by going through the typical channels, you've got to learn from somebody else. You you can't read books about this. You can't watch Shark Tank and and come away as a, <laughs> as a VC. You you've got to learn from other people. And and then by asking questions, you know, so, so so was that a good or a bad company? And having those questions asked to you and develop that that gut and that 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 insight and intuition around around what makes a good founder and what what's what's a right business opportunity. A lot of that's got to be shown, you've got to be shown the way or shown a handful of examples on how to do it. Because every VC is a little different. But I think that that most of us, as, as you talked about from sort of business mentors, we learned how we approach these from from other people, not from books or, or from classes.
1: Hmm, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with David Hall. He is a partner at the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, part of Revolution uh, Partners. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold, and you can see any of our other 200 or so uh, previous conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at podcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together Uh, these weekly conversations. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.